One miraculous playoff run gets another round while another comes to a crashing halt. We'll dissect that in our main topic and get you up to speed on the other three playoff series. Plus, the future of women's hockey is in limbo. Deciding on a pay raise for Mitch Marner, Fox Watch is over before it even starts, and the 67s are still hot fire. Episode 170 of the Lace Em Up podcast starts right now. It's time to lace them up. Here's Brett and Steve. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Steve Ellsworth. I'm Brett Duboff. Before we go any further, we're going to delve into the Hockey Hall of Fame book of trivia. Brett, are you ready for this week's question? Yeah, I guess so. All right, question 57. Here we go. Oh, this is going to be a good one. Which Hall of Fame goaltender never recorded a winning regular season in NHL play? Never this recorded. Is a wait, good one here. sorry, never recorded never, a regular. Never recorded a winning regular season in NHL play, and he's a Hall of Famer. Okay. So your options are A. Hap Holmes, probably never heard of him. B. Chuck Rayner, probably also never heard of him. C. Glenn Hall or D. Eddie Giacomin. Um, I've never heard of any of these guys, but um. I mean, I guess that makes sense, considering if they never recorded a regular season. Um, I'm going to go with Eddie Giacomin. That sounds somewhat familiar. Yeah, you know what? That's actually what I was going to go with, too, because he played for the Rangers, and the Rangers had some pretty trying times. Um, Glenn Hall, I definitely heard of. He, He played many, many games with the Chicago Blackhawks and later teams like St. Louis. But uh, the correct answer is actually B, Chuck Rayner. Um, So I'll give you his best season ever. In the regular season, in 1949-1950, he went 28-30-11, and then in the playoffs went 7-5, which is kind of funny. Um, His career stats in the NHL, that spanned from 1940 to 1953. He was a career 138-208-77 with a record of nine and nine in 18 playoff games. Wow. Yeah. So wait, how well, did he get into, go. how did he get into the hall of fame though? That's a very good question. Just because um, of his playoff performance. It was, it was more so because he started out with the lowly New York Americans um. and then he went to the Rangers who were also struggling. So, um, what, what's, what's also interesting is it says, despite those grim totals, Rayner was named league MVP and carried his plucky blue shirts to within one goal of the Stanley Cup. So Jeez. that's part of the reason why he's in the Hall of Fame. But I, yeah, that's interesting. You're just thinking every single goalie in the Hall of Fame surely has a winning record, but right. this one does not. Right, right. That's interesting. Doesn't even have a 500 record. I mean, he's I 70, guess. Yeah, 70 sorry. games below 500. That's pretty crazy. I mean, maybe it's like the Dominic Hasek thing. I mean, of course, Dominic Hasek has a had a winning record, and he had all those seasons with the Red Wings. But like, when he was on the Sabers, he was like the reason um, why they won or lost games or something. But like yeah. this, those Sabers teams weren't great, um, other than that one year uh, when they went to the Stanley Cup Final. But yeah, um, actually, speaking of which, um, it's I guess. I have a trivia question for you. 
Okay. Uh, so, um, I, I actually don't, I, this isn't going to be multiple choice, but I can give you the year. Uh, when I first started following the NHL, what team did I follow religiously? And it's not the Bruins. That's the only hint I'm going to say. Uh, I feel like I should know this because you probably mentioned it. Did you mention it on a previous show? Uh, I may have, but it, if I did, it would probably be like our first season of... Yeah, either way, I don't remember. So I'm going to take a shot in dark and say the Rangers only because your dad uh, follows the Rangers yeah. a lot. That's a good guess, but it was actually the Dallas Stars in... Oh, uh, right, because of Brett Hall, right? Because of Brett Hall, yeah. I think I told you that before, but yeah, I think so. I I just couldn't remember it off the top of my head. I figured it was worth. I figured it was worth mentioning because I was just referring to Dominic Hasek, and I was like, oh, that's actually. Oh yeah. And and the Dallas <laughs> right, Stars. Yeah. And the Dallas Stars yeah, Google, were also. Search Dominic Hasek and the Dallas Stars. It probably Brett Hull's game-winning goal pops yeah. up every time. I know, I know. It was also like my like I just would play it. Like non, I would play uh, NHL '99, and I was always yeah. the Dallas Stars. So Mike Medano, Brett Hull. I don't even think I saw too many of the actual Dallas Stars play games, but I I played the like I would just played the video game nonstop. Um, and then eventually I started realizing like, oh, they're actually a good team. <laughs> um, have, you, have you ever seen the Bruins play the Stars before? I have, yeah. Uh, when I was younger, yeah, but um, I don't know. I've, I kind of stopped following them as closely as I used to just because, like, the Bruins were, like, I, I kind of loved Sergei Samsonov and Joe Thornton, um, and then that's when it really started where it's like, oh, okay, this is, you know, the Bruins are actually a fun team. Um, okay. Uh, all right. <laughs> I got distracted a bit. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, Carolina, uh, sweeps the Islanders, um, last week, um, or this week, I guess, so it was in Thursday, I believe, um, and it's... It was actually, it was actually Friday when, was Friday. Um, they completed the sweep, if I'm not mistaken, but, uh, yeah, yeah I, 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 I think we should name them the Bunch of Jerks, they're not the Carolina Hurricanes, they're the Bunch of Jerks <laughs> Just now. the Bunch of Jerks now. Um, they, um... What's crazy about this is that, I mean, I'm not sure if it was so much that Carolina was dominating, which they did, but it was also like the Islanders couldn't score to save their lives. Um, they only had, I mean, not, I guess that's a, that's a bad phrase because they only had five goals in four, four of those games, whereas the Hurricanes had a 13 goals in those four games. But, um, so they could score, but um, just not as much as the uh, Hurricanes did. They just, I guess the Islanders fell apart um, because of it. Um, especially like the, the first two games were pretty low scoring. Uh, one of them went into overtime uh, when it was scoreless. And it was just a one nothing OT win um, for the Hurricanes there. And then in game two, it was 2-1. Um, but like then games three and game four, um, weren't really that close because, uh, the, the Hurricanes get five goals, 
um, for game three, and then in game four they also get five goals, and then uh, the Islanders put in two goals, uh, so it wasn't even really that close um, in that sense. Um, but yeah, no, this is uh, this is kind of an amazing, um, regardless of what's going to happen um, in the next round for the Hurricanes, if, whether it's Columbus or Boston, uh, this is like a pretty miraculous um, season for them. Uh, just feel like I mean, I talked about this last week. We talked about it even before then. Is that like you know they they traded away Jeff Skinner. Uh, Elias Lindholm, uh, they get rid of Noah Hannafin, they don't have their coach in Bill Peters. I mean, they weren't like a great team last year, um, but they were decent. They, they somehow, um, they get Dougie Hamilton, They in the middle of the year they get Nino Nitterreiter, um, a steal of a trade by the way, um, you know, they bring in Rod Brindamore. There was definitely these like rumors that like nobody wanted to be the Carolina Hurricanes GM um, because they were gonna pay them so like almost minimum wage or like the lowest amount for a GM, and then all of a sudden they just start winning these games and um, and they get people interested in them. It's kind of um, amazing what they've been able to do. Yeah, uh, it's funny because I was looking at their previous playoff appearances. There was oh, yeah. 2002 where they made the Stanley Cup final. There was 2006 where they won the Stanley Cup. 2009 where they made the Eastern Conference Finals. And I didn't say this at any point during our previous episodes from the playoff preview onwards, but I'm thinking, uh, obviously, they're going to make the Eastern Conference Finals, even though in the back of my mind, I'm just saying, what are the chances of that happening? And right. then they actually do that. Like, right. It, it seems I, I just thought you know they're probably going to make a statement once they get into the playoffs it's like they don't they don't do it frequently but every time they get in they just seem to make some noise and they've done that in their last four playoff appearances Rod Brindamore has played a role in all of those playoff runs in some capacity this being his first behind the bench brings a lot of character there uh, Justin Williams goes without saying he adds to that character on the ice and I think those two additions are big reasons why a very young team like the Hurricanes have been able to defy everyone's expectations. They have speed, skill, youth to get it done, but timely leadership in all the right places have allowed this team to be successful. Uh, another reason they were able to win this series is they seem to play with a chip on their shoulder. With Maratic getting injured in Game 2, McElhaney has to step in. Um, they they get a lot of lucky breaks in game two. Um, you have a goalie 35 right now going to turn 36 soon, um, becoming the oldest goalie to uh, make his playoff debut to get his first playoff start um, in game three, and he gets it done. And then series clincher game four, he wins that one as well. Um, you have that troll job by Brock Nelson where he taps McElhaney on the yep. back of the head after he scores and Hamilton returns it to him on the handshake line when they can't do much of anything. It The way this team is able to respond to adversity, stick to their game plan, and let the adversity fuel their drive to succeed is, again, another reason why they were able to win this series. It Just the composure that they have, how they're able to go about their business. 
they believe in each other and they're united at one common goal. They stick to that common goal. Everyone's all in, no passengers. Kind of reminds me like a bit of the 2017 Senators who won a lot of close games. They just kept finding ways to win hockey games. Um, Regardless of what the shots on goal were, uh, who won more face-offs, who got the most power plays, they just kept plugging away, kept hanging around, and just kept finding ways to get results. In other ways, they remind me of last year's Golden Knights, where no one expected them to do much of anything in the playoffs, let alone the regular season. Yeah. And I think on the ice, they're more like the Golden Knights in the sense that they rely on speed to dictate the play. If you watch some of the games in this series, the puck pursuit in a lot of those games, Carolina blitz their opponents hard. They're constantly storming the other team. They wear teams down with their speed. Craig Button alluded to this during one of his post-game TV hits. Um, They wear you down. Like when you when you hem the other team into their own zone and you do that for several minutes, by the time they get out of their zone, they're going to have a tough time generating offense because they're so dog tired. Yeah. And in this series, the Islanders didn't play their game once things shifted to Carolina. They were getting a lot of looks in games one and two. For whatever reason, the puck just wasn't finding the back of the net. The Canes had a lot of luck going their way. But games three and four roll around. You saw Carolina play their game more and more and go back to the team that made them successful. And this style of play is one, um, is one of the reasons why the Canes can just outshoot the opposition like crazy because they're in the other team's end. They're not in their own zone. And as a result, when you're not in your own zone, you're not giving up as many shots. You're not giving up as many goals. And for a lot of this series, it came down to just one play. For a lot of this series, a fast start to a hockey game could have changed the entire complexion of how we look at the result, how we look yeah. at this series. And the Hurricanes didn't get those fast starts, but the Islanders didn't. And that bought Carolina some time, and it bought them enough time to get to get it done. And I certainly didn't think that they could beat the Islanders in four straight. But I certainly thought there was a way that Carolina could surprise a lot of people and extend their season by at least another round and good on them for doing it. It's it, it's great to see underdog teams like this just go on runs that really make you question how much you know about hockey. Yeah. Because that's what makes hockey fun, the unpredictability of it all and and I, I think it hockey becomes a lot more boring when you know what's going to happen. Yeah, uh, two things here, uh, and then we'll talk about the Islanders. Uh, the first one is that, um, like, you know, when you talk to, I mean, any hockey fan or any knowledgeable hockey fan like me or you, or pretty much anyone um, who has watched the Hurricanes, you know, they would say, like, uh, the, the best – player on the Hurricanes is Sebastian Ajo, or um, their best defenseman is Dougie Hamilton. And they've had a great playoffs, don't get me wrong. Sebastian Ajo has 9 points in 11 games, and Dougie Hamilton has 7 points in 11 games. But, um, like, the most impressive thing to me is, is that they're able to get, like, guys not their best players, they're performing too. Uh, Jacob Slavin has 11 points in 11 games. All of those are assists. Um, 
you also have Tebow Teravainen, who we've talked about in the past, but um, you know he has six goals. He's leading the uh, the Hurricanes in goals with six, um, and he has nine points overall. Jordan Stahl, he had that game winner um, in game one, um, and he's been very impressive. We're back to uh, what we expected of him when he was drafted third overall, um, or actually second overall, excuse me, um, with nine points. Um, then you have Warren Fogel, um, who had his moments early on in the season, but then he kind of drifted apart, but he has nine points in 11 games. I talked about Sebastian Ajo, uh, Dougie Hamilton. It's just like Justin Williams has been a big part of the team. Uh, he keeps on like, he's like Mr. Game 7, but he's like, he's been able to um, like use his leadership and uh, get things going uh, with everyone around. So uh, Justin Williams has six points in 11 games as well. So it's like, it's not just like they're the best players who've been doing well. It's like they're getting points through like every part of their roster, which I find really impressive for a team like this uh, because they're not like, um, you know, like they're not like a team that has a ton of weapons like Toronto or Tampa Bay but they're able to get, you know, get further than Tampa and Toronto did just because of like, just how well they're, they're I don't want to say teamwork, but like the, how it seems like they're working well together and they have a good camaraderie together. Which brings me to my next point. Um, like, I feel like there is something to this like storm surge that they had in the, um, in the beginning of the year um, and that kind of ended towards, uh, like, I want to say it ended in March. Um, but, like, when they would do, like, a post-game celebration type thing. And it was a, I think it was originally just made to get, like, fans excited, and um, which it definitely did. And it put, like, the Hurricanes on the map because it got people talking about the Hurricanes. But I think there is something to, like, then all of a sudden you got, like, Don Cherry... Um, Mike Milbury, you got like um, all these different like quote unquote influential people like talking badly towards this particular storm surge celebration. Yeah, Brian Burke and, is another. Bold yeah, Brian Burke too. was the other one, and like they all like you know, and it was a way for all of them to like bring it together and be like you know what, like, this is, like, fun. It's not, like, hockey's meant to be fun. It's not meant to be, like, this, like, you know, uh, put in your t work ticket and take, you know, and, like, take it out at the end of the day. It's, like, it's supposed to be fun. Um, and, it, like, I'm sure it was, like, at the beginning, it was meant to be this, like, fan-friendly thing. But then all of a sudden, it started to become, like, I feel like a bit of, like, a team bonding experience for them and it's kind of like you know it was able to get like guys like me and you who don't really like think about the Carolina Hurricanes on a daily basis but we're like you know what you know we kind of got them on their side um now because they're like oh they're doing something different and it's it's something really cool that that like no other team has been able to do that um and I find that very impressive as well yeah, for sure. I I don't know if their luck's going to continue. Like, Vegas yeah. did the unthinkable last June and went to the finals, so I guess nothing says they can't do the unthinkable. Right. Um, and I, I, I just, 
I, I think either way, they're going to give their next opponent a run for their money. I think it's yep. going to go at least six or seven games. But against Columbus or Boston or whoever it is, I think Carolina's luck runs out here because uh, they're going up against a great team with a lot of skill. Um, they might have the rest factor, which could serve them well against Boston because this would be the second, right. second straight series where Boston goes the distance. Um, Carolina and Columbus... Um, would have both gone through lengthy series and as well as um as well as the sweeps so i think both teams would be evenly matched in terms of rest um but i i think the winner of columbus and boston is going to be a lot more battle tested and we've seen a team win multiple game sevens in the same playoff uh, one of them i'm sure brett remembers is the 2011 bruins yep uh they went on to win the stanley cup that year and Columbus is playing like a team that could also do something pretty special. They played decent in a Boston venue that's caused them issues. Uh, they weren't intimidated by Tampa Bay's building either, and I doubt they'll be intimidated by a Carolina team that's gone 5-0 and on home ice in these playoffs. Yeah. So um, I, I think either way, Carolina's going to have their work cut out for them in the conference finals. Nothing says they can't do it, but I don't have them as favorites once the conference finals rolls around. I just think, I, I, I don't think they can, I don't think they can really contain any high danger offenses, especially, especially a team like Columbus that uh, whenever their goaltending has been tested, they've responded in a monster way. Like, like Bobrovsky is going to be going up again if it's if it's Bobrovsky or if it's Rask either one of them is going to have the advantage against either Morazic or McElhaney whoever's ready to go for game one yeah um they've just been playing on a whole nother level in these playoffs especially Bobrovsky um I mean we'll we'll talk about that series in a second but I think there is um I mean I think the like I feel like their defense is one of their biggest strengths um, because they have guys like Jacob Slavin and Dougie mm-hmm. Hamilton. Um, and then you have like Brett Pesci, Justin Falk. Um, although they won't have Trevor Van Riemsdyk, you know, they have Calvin DeHaan, who's also great defensively. So it's like they, they, I feel like their defense is, will be able to handle, uh, Boston or Columbus, whoever they face. Um, I think my bigger concern for Carolina, though, is their goaltending. Um, Curtis Curtis McElhaney and Peter Morazic. Uh, Curtis McElhaney has been great all regular season, um, and Peter Morazic has been decent during the regular season. So whoever plays, um, if if Morazic's healthy, then um, you know during the next round, I'm not sure. But like you know, I the thing with those two goalies though is that. We haven't seen them be this good for a long term, so I feel like their goaltending is it's going to eventually break out. Now the question is: is will that be enough to win them this to go into the Stanley Cup Finals and win the Stanley Cup Finals, or will it like disintegrate into the next round? That's what I'm not sure about. Um, but I feel like if the Carolina Hurricanes are going to lose um, in the playoffs. Right now, it has to be. It's going to be because Curtis McElhaney wasn't cutting it, or Peter Mrazek wasn't cutting it, and that's 
that's the, that's the big worry if I were a Carolina Hurricanes fan or if I'm on the bandwagon is, is their goaltending going to be enough? Because they have the good skaters. Um, their skaters are like top notch. Uh, their defense is pretty good too. Um, it's just just the goaltending is is a big concern for them. Now you were mentioning uh, Jacob uh, Jakob Slavin. Uh, I have some stats on him because you're right. He's really come into his own yep. here. Um, he has 11 assists in 11 games. The same amount of helpers as Carlson, by the way, who's kind of won the Norris Trophy a couple of times. No big deal. Um, look at uh, Slavin's average time on ice through 11 games: 26 minutes 36 seconds. Uh, that ranks him fifth in the 2019 NHL playoffs, behind only Brent Burns, Seth Jones, Chris Letang, and Zach Wierenski. Lindell is the only other defenseman in this postseason that has played more on the penalty kill than Jakob Slavin, um, who also has 28 block shots, also putting him in the NHL's top five. Uh, Ten of those 28 blocks have come on the penalty kill, also good enough to put him in the NHL's top five. Uh, 13 takeaways in 11 games, good enough for third in the NHL during these playoffs. Um, Definitely goes without saying that he's been an underrated defenseman for a couple of years. But at this rate, uh, he's no longer underrated. He's he's really taking uh he's really making sure the nhl takes notice of his talent yeah i think i think part of the reason is like i had heard of his name but i was always thinking of him that because like i knew that he was good at defense but it's like yeah, hard to like he's, a, he's a good shutdown yeah. defenseman but you didn't see the offensive side of right him. right and i think that's the thing is like now he's actually putting up points on the scoreboard so you're like oh so he is he does have some offensive potential there um but yeah, no, he is. He has. It's kind of like his coming out party this year is, is uh, getting those eleven assists in eleven games. Even though he's more known, it's kind of like a Matthias Eichholm in that way. Uh, like Eichholm had a, like a stretch where he was just all of a sudden he was putting points on the scoreboard. Even though we know him more towards being like a shutdown guy. Um, so, so that's the interesting part about that. Um, let's go to the New York Islanders here. I'm going to do a moratorium here. Um, they, uh, you know, the thing that's interesting about the Islanders is, like, all year we were talking about Robin Leonard um, and Thomas Grice um, and how they were able to, um, you know, their goaltending was fantastic all year. Um, they'll probably win the Jennings Award um, because they were both, like, very good whenever they played. Um, but um, during the playoffs, um you know, Robin Leonard did really what well, like they swept the Penguins and then they got swept by the Hurricanes. So that's got to hurt uh, for them, for sure. Um, and I don't think even, I mean, although Robin Leonard lost, like gave up five goals in those last two games, I don't really think it's all his fault necessarily. Um, you know, like they didn't really get scoring um, at all in the second, in the second round. Um Jordan Eberle kind of fell short. I mean, Matthew Barzal got a goal here and there, but he didn't. He doesn't really stand out either. So um, I think that's like a big question mark in the future is uh, for the Islanders is just going forward is like how are they going to solve this forward issues? Um, and not to mention that Robin Leonard is going to be a UFA next year, um, along with Jordan Eberle, Brock Nelson, Anders Lee. Uh, Valt- Valt- Valtteri Filippula, Tom Kunakel, 
uh, Lucas Sabiza and Dennis Seidenberg, and then Robin Leonard. So that's like 10 guys who are going to be UFAs this year. And um, I'm not sure who, like, what what they're going to do because their their future is kind of um, going to be kind of interesting in that in that sense. Um, Robin Leonard is going to demand so much more money than he was making this year, uh, but um, but the question becomes is can they like can they like the Islanders? Um, that's going to be the biggest question mark is is what the Islanders are going to do with Robin Leonard. Are they going to uh, keep him long term, or are they going to uh, like sell him off? And, and do whatever. Yeah, and, and that's something they really don't have control over unless yeah. it's like a sign and trade because he's a UFA as opposed right. to last year where he was an RFA. Yeah. Um, but um, it, it, he actually signed with the Islanders because uh, there was a way for the Sabres to kind of like terminate his contract, I guess, um, or like give up his rights. So, yeah, that was an interesting situation. But... Uh, even more interesting because, you know, as you know, Sergei Bobrovsky is going to be the biggest goaltender. Yep. And all of the teams that want Bobrovsky but can't get him, they're probably going to look towards Robin Leonard, yep. which means very good news for Robin Leonard because his value is going to go up as a result because Bobrovsky is going to be paid the, the highest no matter where he goes. So a lot of the second-place teams are going to be like, well, I guess we have to turn our attention to Robin Leonard. Um, and why not? You know, he had a Vesna-worthy season. Um, definitely not the reason why the Islanders lost this series. We'll get to their free agents, um, what I think of their situation in a second. But you're right. Goaltending wasn't the reason why they lost this series. I think bad luck and bad offense yep. lost them. Like, game one was a goalie's duel. No team was giving an inch. Carolina gets a chance in OT to win it. They capitalize. Islanders lose that game. Yep. Um, in the third period of game two, the shots were seven to six for the Islanders, but they had a lot more chances than that to tie the game up. They had missed chances. They had posts. They had crossbars. That no goal in the late second, that could have made it a 2 nothing lead. Every break went Carolina's way and against the Islanders. And the Hurricanes were fortunate to come out of New York with a 2 nothing series lead um, and to, the, to the point where I think that kind of killed the Islanders a, a little bit that uh, they weren't even able to get a split out of that. Um, in game three, it was, a, again, for the most part, a one-goal affair, but a misplay behind the net by Leonard. Aho knocks the puck out of midair, sets up Williams. That's a game-winning tally. So technically, the first three games were decided by a goal. And then it wasn't really until game four where the Islanders never looked like they had a chance to win in each of the first three games, they had a chance to turn this series around. And when your offense scores five goals in four games and two even strength goals in four games, you're not setting yourselves up for success in the long run. So um, never for a second, in my opinion, that's on Robin Leonard. It's not Robin Leonard's yeah. fault. Um, he, he can't score goals and stop pucks at the same time. Uh, so now we go to their off season. Um, Oh, by the way, before we go, get to the offseason, I do want to make a point that uh, in the second round, the uh, Islanders played all their home games in the Barclays Center, 
instead of Nassau Coliseum. And I, I know it sounds odd, but I think there is something to that where they weren't playing um, in their, their, I mean, obviously they played in Barclays the last like three years or so, but like there is uh, something there. But I think there is something to like, they weren't playing in their old home base uh, for that for that time and that I think that had some psychological effect on on their play in general well I think yes and no because um, one of the honors players mentioned and people forget about this in 2016 when they beat the Panthers um, Barclays Center was buzzing they played their games at the Barclays Center yeah so but it, it, was, it, it wasn't like it was a bad crowd or anything like that but when you have a former player in Calvin Dahan who's played at both the Barclays Center yeah. and at Nassau Coliseum, played in both environments, and have him saying, thank God we didn't play our games at Nassau Coliseum or maybe things would be different. Yeah. Um, I, I, I definitely think that your point isn't ridiculous to make at all. I, I certainly yeah. think it's valid. Um, but I, I think there was a lot of dumb luck that went against the Islanders' way, and I think in games one and two that kind of set them back, and they just weren't able to fully recover from that. But yeah, yeah, I, I guess I mean obviously like the the hockey speaks for themselves, obviously. But I, I just I don't know. I just felt like there was there is something to um, not being where you were at, you were playing at for for a round because it it would just make a, a difference. It would be like you know. I, I have a feeling like if the Bruins didn't like played their round not at TD Garden, it would it would just mess things up, um, just like uh, from a psychological standpoint. I mean, I know that they've had some success in Barclays, but I think it's just there there is a different like from what I've heard is Barclays is more like a corporate setting, whereas Nassau Nassau Coliseum is like they also had their own issues, but like it's it's like it feels like more of their home and it's more of like the identity of the islanders versus barclay where it's more like um just business people there and they don't necessarily care about the team as much um so i think there is something to uh to just the different venue that they played at that's preposterous they care about a team it's the brooklyn nets <laughs> yeah yeah exactly it's the brooklyn Islanders. i mean they have a they have a damn car right there um, you know, the most perplexing part about the entire venue is that freaking car. I like, kind of love. I grew to love the car, but it, it is it is it is nuts that they have that thing. The only the only part I see that is either a TV place. Kid you not, they actually have a car just parked in the stand somewhere, or um, or in Europe. Like yep. you see at a lot of World Hockey Championships, there's just a card chilling in the stands somewhere. All right. Anyway, sorry. Go back to your off-season though. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Bovillier and Dal Cole should be mentioned. There are phase. Neither is going to break the bank on Canada Day like Barzal will next year or um, um, what's what's the other Pulak? name? Ryan Pulak on defense. He's he's got one more year left. Or Devin Tays. Devin Tays. Sorry. Uh, Devin Tays is also going to be an RFA next year. Yep, Devin Tays as well. I think primarily Pulak and Barzal yep. are going to hurt the Islanders' payroll the most, though, because Pulak had one heck of a year. Barzal, we all know what he's capable of. Both are probably going to go for at least $5 million. I definitely think Barzal exceeds $5 million, probably going to be like $8, 9 10 something like yep. that. 
Um, I think they're going to keep Eberle if it's at the right price because his last deal was four to six years at six million AAV. I wouldn't sign another one of those if I'm Lule Morello. So if the price is right and the term is right, Eberle stays. Uh, I can see Anders Lee and Brock Nelson both staying um, on new deals. I think both will be in the four to five year range. Um, the, it should also be mentioned that at the time their season ended, the Islanders have nine million in cap space, and they have nineteen million or so next year worth of wriggle room that they that um, compared to this year's group of fours they won't be spending. So they have not uh, nineteen million ish of or breathing room still on top of the cap space they already have. Yeah. So they could go for a big fish like. If Leonard leaves, Sergei Bobrovsky, or Matt Duchesne, if if uh, they're if they're looking for some center depth, they also have um, a lot of goalies in their um, system. Like uh, uh, the big one is um, what's his, the big one's Sorokin. Um, they also have Linus Soderstroms, Jacob Skarek. Um So they have a couple of goalies that in their system that could uh, could be pros um, pretty soon. Yeah. And and you know they they have a they have a system with uh, Barry Trotz as well. I yep. think this is a system that is going to bring them continued success moving forward. I can see them being a cup contender for many many years. Um, and the fact that they have all this cap space, they have a lot of room to retool their roster and get it to where it needs to be. And that's where I think the future is bright for the Islanders. The fact they're able to do what they could do with this group is great. With this coaching staff. Um, with the guys like Mitch Korn behind the scenes that were able to kind of transform Grice and Leonard to the point where they could become a solid goaltending tandem as yep. well. Uh, that was huge for them. So there's lots of room to grow here for the New York Islanders, and that's that's the positive I'm taking away here. Um, I think with Robin Leonard, though, they need to watch the price tag, though, because last year was a bargain deal at under $2 million, and... Leonard says this is just step one. He wants to be even better next year, predicts that he will be. Um, and he adds that there's plenty to consider. Like, this guy's in the running for the Vezina Trophy. He's going to be in a very slim goalie market where the most expensive option is Bobrovsky. There could be a bidding war for Robin Leonard, especially once it's determined where Bobrovsky is going. And while I think the Islanders would be wise to keep him, while I think Leonard's the best fit with the Islanders, uh, considering what Mitch Korn was able to do with Leonard this year, um, I think he's wise to test the free agent market. As much as as much as this year was good to him, as much as he enjoyed the good vibes with the Islanders, and he loves the direction this team is going, this might be the only chance for Robin Leonard to get full value. Yeah, and that's true. That's that's why I think he's keeping all options open because he should. He should have every right to do so. Because I don't think he's going to get an option like this again. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Uh, I don't think he'll get a, better options otherwise. But I think that the thing is, is, and you mentioned it yourself, that like the Islanders have a lot of cap space this offseason with all these UFAs off the books. So I feel like the Islanders could afford to pay him and then maybe get another big name um on on the forward depth or on on defense or something like that so that they 
uh, they can continue to be successful. But um, yeah, it's it's funny too because I was looking at um, the, you know their cap friendly page, and the only one that that really well, there's two that stand out to me that as really bad contracts are uh, Andrew Ladd is making five point five million for like four more years, and yeah, then you have. Cal Clutterbuck making three point five million, which isn't too bad, but that's still you know a couple of dollars millions um, to Cal Clutterbuck, um, and then like you have Casey Sezikis making three point three five, uh, Leo Komarov making three million uh, for a couple more years as well. So it's like um, all in all, like it doesn't those contracts on its own don't don't um, aren't like a huge deal, but when you put them all together, you're like, oh, that's like nine million all to get for three players like that, where um, they aren't even in their top six. So, um, so that's that's gonna be the interesting thing is because they're gonna have to figure out a way to um, manage Andrew Ladd, Casey Sasekis, Cal Clutterbuck, and Leo Komarov somehow. And that's where the depth of their prospects is really going to be tested and that's yeah. where they're going to have to really excel in their task of developing these prospects right guys like yeah. Kiefer Bellows guys like Matt Dalcole and the other Oliver big Wallstrom. name that I'm wondering as a future is Josh Hossain because oh. he's an RFA right now and I I don't know if he has a future with the team so they need to address that in the yeah that's too. a good point too um also Oliver Wallstrom will probably be in the AHL next year so they mm-hmm. have that to look forward to and Noah Dobson who had a pretty good year last year yeah. as well. Um, On top of, you know, developing uh, guys like Kiefer Bellows, Mitch Van de Sample, yep. uh, continued development in the Myers, that's going to be key for them. And yep. and definitely their young goaltending talent, they should uh, focus on that too because they also have Chris Gibson, but yep. um, they have guys like you mentioned, Soderstrom and Skarik and now... Sorokin. Uh, and, and the Russian goaltender on top of that. It's... Um, they certainly have a lot of options there, and only one of them is probably going to have a role with the NHL club moving forward. Yep. Um, which, which is, which is kind of why I can see them going after Bobrovsky if if Leonard doesn't come back because a can they can afford to pay him and not have to worry about some sort of cash yeah, right away. Because that's true. And B, um, I don't know if any of their prospects are ready to step in. And take over Thomas Grice's job. Well, I'm looking so, here. That's why I mentioned Mabrowski. I'm looking right. here. Um, Sorokin had in 40 KHL games, he has a 940 save percentage and a 1.16 GAA. So that's for CSKA um, Moscow. So that's that's pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I know it's the KHL, but uh, I think that's going to be their. That's going to be the first goalie that they're going to look to, to um, for their future. Um, and I think I, I definitely think he's going to have a pivotal role in the AHL. I think at the very yeah. least he'll be the starting goaltender in Bridgeport. Of course, yeah. Um, yeah, he may follow along like the Carter Hart type thing. It's like of all of a sudden like all these injuries happen to these goalies and he's uh, he could be like a good player up, up top for them. Um, yeah. We have to get into all the other stuff now. Um, <laughs> the Bruins um, Columbus series, not biased at all here, but this has been an incredible series. I feel like this is the most exciting series of the four. Um, just because it seems like so much stuff is happening. Both of these teams are very fascinating. 
um, just in, in the players that are on the team. And um, it's basically just been like, it's been subsequently a goalies duel and a shootout in all on all of these games. Like both Bobrovsky and Tukaras have been phenomenal um, in all five of these games. But at the same time, like, you know, like there's a ton of like skaters who have been scoring goals left and right as well. So it's like, it's kind of like a mixture of both. Um, and there's also some controversy as well, but I, I do want to shout out both Bobrovsky and Tuka Rask. They've both been amazing um, in this series. Uh, Tuka Rask had like a 40, um, was it a, he had a 39 save game on in game four. He had a 33 save game um, in game five that he won. Um, he also had like a 38 game save uh, save game in uh, game two, even though he lost that game. Um, and then uh, Bobrovsky had a 42 saves um, in game four um, and 32 saves in game five, um, 36 saves in game three. So like uh, Bobrovsky has had more challenges, but uh, Tugaras has definitely held his own, especially in game four and game five. Um, and then um, there was a phenomenal game five as well in the third period. Um, that was unbelievable. Um, game three had a controversial goal for Columbus where it um, hit, um, where like, the puck hit the netting and then it fell onto Panarin's Panarin's stick and then Panarin shot it into the goal. And for some reason that's not reviewable, um, which doesn't make sense to me. It's like, uh, like you can review offsides if you're like, even if the goal happened like a couple minutes later, you're able to review that. Or if like if there's minimal contact with the goalie interference, that's able to you know that's reviewable. But like the factor of like n no ref saw this this puck hit the netting, and then um, and then it was able to be a goal, and then all of a sudden like you can't review that. Like what what gives? Like it, like I understand you can't review everything, but like that should be that's like the most simple thing that you should be able to review it like the puck literally hit the net um so that was frustrating but of course it didn't end up mattering because uh that game was uh it ended 2-1 uh but it, or it ended um 4-1 4-4-1 but um that was just the uh, that, that drove me nuts as well it's it's odd because like you know you you, you look at the Pavelski on uh, the Ekin on Pavelski thing uh, from uh, round one game yeah. seven uh, Vegas San Jose where you know it's it kind of looks like black and white in slow motion and they stick with that five minute major call yeah. and something clear as crystal hits the net oh we can't review that right right so that's the that was just more frustrating it's just like. Well, why can't we review that? I mean, I understand like all this these reviews take time, and it's not like this kind of stuff happens all the time. But like that seems like such an easy thing to call, where you could just like look at it and say like, okay, it went over the glass, and then you know all of a sudden it's something like that. But uh, Tuka had a funny quote about it, but he said that he didn't <laughs> see it. He didn't see the puck hit the net. Um, 
which is why he didn't complain to the refs. And he said that, believe me, uh, if I had known at that moment, I would have, uh, I would have like throw a, he like referenced to his throwing a milk crate back when he was in Providence, um, which I thought was like funny. It's like, I believe me, I would have made a scene if, if I had known, um, which I thought was a good, but it's like, just it was annoying that um that that happened but at least the Bruins won so it didn't end up mattering that much um I have uh, other pieces of controversy here um in game I believe it was game three um Marshawn sucker punches Harrington when Harrington was on the ground or something like that um it was in the back of the head um but Marshawn does not get suspended for this um this is one of those things where like I felt like like, I mean, we say this all the time with Marshawn, whenever he does stupid stuff, it's like, yes, this was a, a very pest-type thing to do, very rat-like thing to do, um, and, you know, I would hate it if the roles were, review, were reversed. Um, however, I don't think it's it was necessarily suspendable. Um, yeah, you know, Batman actually weighed in on that. He said that he didn't go as far to say it was suspendable, but he said it should have been worth at least a penalty, and it wasn't called a penalty. Yeah, either. and if anything, i i would have I would have wanted it to be a fine. I felt like that would be deserved, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, it should have been called something. Um, I, I I feel like if people asking him to be suspended was a bit too much, um, but I I I think like I'm not I'm not like. Condone, I'm not condoning it either. Um, so I don't know. Um, there's that. Also, uh, the next game, I think his first name is David. Uh, anyways, Kukon. I know that's his last name. It's a cool last name. I'll give Dean, him that. That's his, I believe his first name is Dean. Oh, Dean. Okay. It was kind of close. Uh, he elbows Bacchus um, into the boards. Uh, Bacchus had to leave the game for a bit. Um, I think he did return for game five, but that did get a two-minute penalty. Um, I thought that was even worse than what Marshawn did. I was, I was, I mean, I was emailing you. It's like, how could he? Uh, how could that be a two-minute penalty? If most at all, it, that should have been a five-minute penalty. But I felt like the outrage should have been towards that. He was like, he literally like just elbowed him right into the head. And Bacchus has concussion history. Um, at that, like Bacchus could be seriously hurt. And uh, not, like he only got a two-minute penalty out of that. I felt like that should have been a five-minute penalty um, at the le- very least. It did not get that. It was a two-minute penalty, and he doesn't get suspended either. Um, I, feel like, I feel like that kind of uh, cancels out to the non-call on Marshawn. It's just like, yeah, we yeah. didn't get much anything, so we'll let this guy off easy too. I guess, I guess that may have been the case, but like maybe I'm biased, but... Like, I feel like that was way more egregious than what Marshawn did. Um, so I feel like that's just... It definitely wasn't you know, legal. I would have called... The, I would definitely would have given that more than two minutes. You yeah, know, so... It, it, you, can't, right. you can't let uh, that stuff fly. I'm glad... Uh, I, okay, I'm good that we have an unbiased opinion guy saying agreeing with me here. Um, I don't want to be like, you know... I don't want to be like known as like the Jack Edwards of our of our um, podcast here. Um, but, uh, no, I felt like that was egregious as well. Um, that should be noted. Um, also, um, 
we should make, I have here in my notes, but I think this is mostly just because I'm a Bruins fan here, um, that Pasternak and Marshawn um, were kind of criticized a lot just for their play in the last, um, in games three and games four, um, also in game two and game one, because they were on a cold streak, so was Bergeron. But then uh, Pasternak gets, a, he gets a power play goal in game four, um, and um, and then in game five, Pasternak and Marshawn are officially back, I feel like. Um, Marshawn gets a goal and uh, two assists. Uh, Pasternak gets two goals, um, and they were both the game, like they were both, the one was the game tying goal and one ended up being the game winning goal. So um, there was that, but um, yeah, it was, um, so that was, it was good, like, and they came in at the exact moment when they needed to be, because it was that entire third period of game five, where Brad Marchand scores to make it 2 nothing, then all of a sudden Seth Jones scores, and it was like, the puck was like, uh, on first review, like, the puck didn't, like, it seemed like Tuca saved it, but then they did a review, and they found out that the puck did go in slightly, so I, I, I would have seen it. I, I agreed that that was a goal, but I kind of like put the momentum back to Columbus. Then the next minute, Pasternak scores finally, um, fifth of the uh, fifth of the playoffs. Then uh, Ryan Dzingel gets this beauty. There was nothing that Tuca could have done for that one, but it makes it three two. Um, and at that point, it was like, oh, thank God Pasternak got that third goal for us, because then it would have been two two, and we would have been screwed. And then all of a sudden, of course, Dean Kukan uh, gets gets his first goal of the year um, of the playoffs, and he ties it up three three. Um, and that one wasn't Tuka's fault. Like the deep, like I I was screaming at like where was Chara? Chara was like like off center. He wasn't where he should be. Um, I think Krug was also on the ice there too. Like the defense was spread out, and it was like it shouldn't have been. Um, but uh, anyways, Kukan gets that goal there, um, and then um, and that happened in like the lat and all those four goals happened in like three minutes, um, which is where it got really exciting. And then um, David Pasternak scores within like the last two minutes of the game, um, so there was that, and it, it was four three, but. Um, that was a phenomenal game five there. I look forward to game six. I feel like it's going to go to game seven. Um, and Torts also feels that way too because he guaranteed game seven um, in, uh, in his pre- in his post-game uh, press conference. Uh, he guaranteed game seven. He didn't go full Thomas Hurdle in saying that they were the better team or all that stuff, but he just said that uh, there's going to be a game seven. Um, I feel like this is like, I mean, this is very typical of towards, I feel like he guarantees games every, every now and then, um, well, yeah, just like to rile his in, team in 20, up. In 2018 round one against Washington, he said the same thing and they lost game six. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so it's not unusual to him, but I do agree with him. I feel like the, both the Bruins and the Blue Jackets have been very evenly matched, um, for all five of these games. So I could very well see Columbus winning game six um, t- tomorrow or when this publishes, um, which would be Monday, um, that that's going to happen. But um, 
but yeah, we'll we'll see. Yeah, I I feel like the Jackets are really starting to turn the ship around once they return to Nationwide Arena. Um, like in the third period of Game Three, Bobrovsky was really shutting the door, making a lot of quality saves there. Um, Boston's primary scorers were also getting nothing in that game, and in Game Four they started to reemerge a little bit. Uh, Rask also flipped the script, had his best yep. game of the playoffs, and then um, actually Game Four was so Rask played so well that Michael Felger gave him credit. Yeah, um, for, which never for happens. winning the game. So, so that was. Uh, that was um, that's that just shows how good Tugaras has been. That Felger is giving him props. Yeah, and 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 in in those two games against Columbus um, at Nationwide Arena, Brad Marchand wasn't playing like Brad Marchand. He was starting to resort to those antics that you don't want Brad Marchand resorting mm-hmm. to. So I'm just thinking that's bad for the Bruins because if he's not scoring goals and and he's making himself the center of attention and not the team, like. That's advantage Columbus right there, and right. that's why I think a win in game three, uh, in game five rather, would have been so critical for the Blue Jackets with all the fight they showed in the third period. A game that looked destined for OT, and then Pasternak gets that dagger of a goal with less than two minutes left. Um, I, I, I definitely think Columbus still has a chance to force game seven, but Boston better wrap it up in six because if it goes to game seven, the Bruins aren't winning game seven. I don't know about that, man. But Columbus if they force Game Seven. I don't know about that, but all right. <laughs> I guess I feel like Game Five was vital for them because Pasternak and Marshawn were finally getting going, and I feel yeah. like they're not going to slow down easily uh, now that they're like actually they actually had a good game. Um, but like, if it does go to Game Seven, it's going to be a home crowd for Boston. It's, I, I feel like Boston has still has the advantage when it when it if it gets to that point. Um, I, I think it will go to overtime. It's grueling games, and it's gonna take just pure will and determination before someone finally scores. So, um, if it goes to Game Seven, prepare for a doozy. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, and that kind of like reminds me because I mean, I mentioned this that when I started introducing this series here, um, was like this, like both Rask and Bobrovsky have been phenomenal, um, in all all five of these games, but there, you know, there hasn't really been like a pure goalie duel yet in this in this series yet, where both both goalies are on their game. Um, and they both are able to stop all these guys at the same time. So um, we'll see that. Um, maybe we'll see it in the next game, or maybe we'll see it in Game 7. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm feeling pretty confident about the Bruins, actually. I know Columbus has played well, but I, th- I think they're, they're going to be up for the challenge and, and beat Columbus in one of these two games. Uh, Anyways, uh, the Dallas Stars and the St. Louis Blues, they're uh, playing, um, they're going to have a Game 7 in on Tuesday, um, so that's uh, exciting news that uh, we, we're recording this su- Sunday night, and so Game 6 just happened, um, and Dallas lost that one 4-1. Uh, to one. Um, and the Blues are forced a game seven, and it's going to be in St. Louis. 
Um, yeah, this has been an interesting series because I feel like both, um, you know, Bennington and Bishop have been pr really pretty good, um, but like at the same time, it's it's kind of like um, you know they both had these lapses or uh, things of that nature. Um, but yeah, um, so this is going game seven. I have a couple of notes here uh, that I believe this was in game four. Uh, Robert, Pertu there was a point in the game where Robert Pertuzzo like cross checks Essa Lindell. Um, so like he cross checks Essa Lindell once, Essa Lindell falls down. Uh, he again get, gets back up. Then he cross checks him again. Essa Lindell falls down and he embellishes even more, and then gets back up. And then Robert Pertuzzo cross checks him again, and then he falls down and gets back up. And this, uh, and then a finally uh, penalty was called. On, I think S. Lindell was actually called for embellishing, but like, um, this is this kind of brought some like debate in my mind where I was thinking like, like, because in my mind like Bertuzzo was the one who was making these penalties. He was cross checking S. Lindell. That's not something you should be doing. But at the same time, Lindell was like diving so egregiously that that should be called as well so it, it was one of those moments where i feel like both bertuzzo and lindell are are to blame for what happened there yeah you know it's <laughs> honestly if you're S. lindell you're not making friends you're making enemies when right. you start flopping around the ice like that um because when you actually do get knocked down, the refs are going to be like, yeah, sure, you got knocked down. We're not right. calling it. So um, I think that's going to hurt Essel Lindell in the long run just because he has their reputation. Now he does, yeah. Diving like three times in 10 seconds or, or trying to sell a call there. Yep. Uh, what's also interesting is that I think the Blues, the Stars got under the blue skin a lot in that game because I don't know if you saw Jordan Bennington um, there was a scrum in front of his net and he got involved in that. And then on his way to the bench, it was during the second intermission, um, Ben Bishop is, is at, uh, the stars bench already. And for whatever reason, or he's on the way to the stars bench and Bennington unintentionally, uh, clips Ben Bishop's, uh, stick. So it, it looked from the overhead that like he intentionally just like was frustrated and just gave Bishop a whack, but actually it is stick and. Bishop said after the game that he actually didn't notice it. So, um, but during the scrum in front of his net, Bennington definitely looked a bit rattled. And then the Stars win Game Five, and 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 I'm just thinking, you know what? I think it's gonna be. I think it's gonna come down to who's got a calmer, cooler head here, because I think there there have been stages in this series where. The Blues looked a little bit uncomposed and not in control of things. And I think that could definitely serve Dallas well, uh, especially considering um, how well Ben Bishop has played. On the other side of the coin, if Ben Bishop is not playing, as um, you probably know of right now, yeah, um, mention that. it's not a guarantee at this point if Ben Bishop is even playing in Game 7 because he took a shot off the collarbone was shaken up the blues end up scoring on that same scoring chance um he ends up sticking around then the score is four to one gets the hook Hugh Dobin comes in probably for precautionary measures but we don't know for sure if he's playing in game seven or not yep um you, you'll wonder with um with a cold turkey Anton Hugh Dobin coming into the net 
um, if that's good or bad for St. Louis or good or bad for Dallas, because on the one hand, Udobin hasn't really faced a lot of rubber in these playoffs. In fact, I don't think he's faced any. Um, but on the other side, uh, St. Louis probably doesn't know much about Hudobin because they haven't faced him all playoffs. Right. So that that could turn into Hudobin's advantage. So it, it, it there's a lot of interesting dynamics going into Game 7. I definitely think uh, top lines and special teams are going to be key. Uh, I also am pretty intrigued by a couple of death players. We already mentioned Jaden Schwartz, who uh, got his eighth of the playoffs in game six. How about Jason Spezza? He's starting to score all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah, he... Uh, I, I think if I'm, I'm looking for clutch performers and where I least expect them, I'm looking at Spezza because he scored at, at least two key goals in this series for them. Yeah, he's been, uh, Jason Spezza has been good. And so has Zuccarello. He's been on the yeah, score sheet as well. Good. Um, yeah. The other, I, you did mention Bishop. Uh, he, uh, he left games, uh, parts of game six because he took a shot to the collarbone and he left after the fourth goal. It's unclear if he'll start in game seven. I imagine he will, but we'll see. Um, but also, uh, Bishop, I think it was in the same game that Essa Lindell dived at. Uh, Bishop also like uh, he was he was getting a puck at the back of the net uh, or you know behind the net and uh, and then someone like hits him and then he like but it was like it was minimal contact and then he falls yeah, down. Stick. Yeah, I, I, I don't. Yeah. I, I, I think he sold it a little bit. Uh, you think? <laughs> um, yeah. So I think I think maybe some contact was made, but I think the way he reacted yeah. was well, a little bit of an exaggeration. I'll just say, I hate, like, I, I, I kind of hate, I know that there is some art to diving and stuff, um, but, like, I don't know, I hate when goalies try to sell stuff like that. It's just, it seems so cheap to me uh, to sell bit, it. There's a bit more of a track record with Bishop, considering, yep. if you remember, your your boy Brad Marchand was called for slashing on Ben Bishop, and I remember oh, yeah. it specifically because Jack Edwards made such a big deal about it on live TV. It's just like... Ben, you act like you've been shot. Yeah. It does feel... Oh, my it, God. He can't stand on one knee. Yeah. It did happen, too, with Ben. I do remember that, yeah. But, like, this one also, like, he felt... It felt like he, he sold it where it felt like he was, like, all of a sudden had back pains or something. Like, he couldn't walk or all of a sudden. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, that was... Um, it should be an interesting Game 7. I'll be watching, obviously. It's my former favorite team. Um, as as we just found out um, <laughs> at the start of the show, um, the also, also an interesting plotline that people forget is that Ben Bishop grew up in St. Louis. I did not know that. Interesting. Yeah. So, or or he is at least born in St. Louis. He's a St. Louis native. So, right. either his childhood team advances or he does. Yeah. Speaking of childhood teams, um, Sharks are up three two to the Colorado Avalanche. Um, this has been kind of like a pretty interesting series considering that it feels like sometimes like the avalanche have the advantage and then the other times like the sharks have the advantage um but uh the the main notable ones that i wanted to get across are uh three players here uh logan couture i think after game three or before game three he mentioned how he has to play better 
and he hasn't been playing up to what he's expecting to play. And all of a sudden, he just casually gets a hat trick that game. Um, three goals in, in, in that game. Uh, three, and he pretty much uh, wins the game for the Sharks there, um, which I thought was kind of like a pretty neat thing to do. It's just like, you know, we don't really talk about Logan Couture, but he's, he's one of the like more underrated superstars in this league right now where he's just capable of doing stuff. It's like a no big deal. I just said that I need to be playing better and all of a sudden he just gets a hat trick. So I love, I love that, that aspect of it. Um, then also Thomas, Tomas Hurdle, um, had two goals, the only two goals for the Sharks. Um, and that happened to be enough for, for them, um, in game five. And they won that. Um, the Sharks won that. Um, so Thomas Hurdle's getting going again. That was his eighth goal of his uh, of the playoffs. So he's been good. Um, so as Nathan McKinnon um, and Philip Grubauer has been, like even when the Avalanche lost have lost the game or losing the games, Grubauer has been like one of the best players for the Avalanche. So he's been phenomenal as well, despite. Um, how he's been doing in, in the postseason. Um, he has a save percentage of 2.16 GAA and a sa uh, save percentage of 9.32, um, which is very good in these playoffs. Um, so that's like around 11 or so games. Um, but yeah, he's been he's been very good as well. So I, I wanted to shout him out. He had 37 saves um, in game five. Um, and only missed two of them. It's just it just so happens that the Avalanche couldn't score there, but um, he played really well. Yeah, I think this is gonna come down to goaltending, and I think Jones or Grubauer, whoever wins this series, whichever team wins, their goalie has to steal a game. Yep. Because um, it's just so evenly matched. All all these teams have a lot of depth offensively. Um, their defense has been under the radar, pretty good. Um, both goalies are making big time saves like Martin Jones since game four against Vegas tip of the hat to him he's been a much better version of himself yeah and, uh, the Martin Jones that I frankly expected when the season started so yep um yeah, now I, you I, can I, talk I, I think with just with just with the seesaw battle that's been going on um I would not be surprised if it goes seven games and at that point it's a coin toss as to who wins but um, I think the Sharks are the favorite just because of the depth that they have and yeah. just the way they've been able to get to get it done with some of the names that are expected to rise to the occasion but maybe haven't in the past, like Martin Jones. So um, I, 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 I'm, I'm kind of, the Sharks are kind of the team that I'm rooting for simply because of Carlson and Couture and, uh, and of sure, course, Jumbo me. Joe. But yeah. Um, it would be nice to see the Avalanche in the conference finals just because of the skill that they have and everything they've gone through as a franchise, even though they fleeced Ottawa in that Matthew Shane trade. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe it's like Carlson's vengeance on on that trade if yeah. he can somehow. <laughs> yeah, this. funny. Funny how um, that would work. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm kind of I'm rooting for the Sharks as well. Um, although I don't even really mind the Avalanche that much. Um, I do want to shout out uh, Kale McCarr uh, since he's been signed. He has five points in eight game, in eight playoff games, um, which is uh, which is not bad for a player who just started playing in the NHL. Like like this is his first couple of games um, 
in in the NHL. So uh, good for him. I I mean I know he was like the third round. He was the third overall pick or something like that. But um, like yeah, he he's gonna be good for for a while now. I feel like I, I think he was actually the fourth overall pick. Oh, was he? Um, Oh right, Miro Miro Heiskin and got before him. The first time around, they slipped three spots, picked Cam McCarr fourth overall. So I'm pretty sure he's fourth. But oh, is it fourth? Okay, way, a very good selection at the time. Oh, that's right. Definitely, definitely looks like a bright future. I, I, I honestly, I what uh, a, a mat, another of the many matchups I would like to see is Matt Duchesne's Blue Jackets go up against Nathan McKinnon and the Avalanche because either Duchesne oh, yeah. Sheldon get a winner he will so that's that's another matchup i oh. wouldn't be a i wouldn't uh, riot at so i thought you were good because i just remembered that heiskanen was the third overall pick that in that draft so it would have been yeah heiskanen has been low-key yeah. delivering for the stars too yeah so i was thinking like if it's the stars avalanche so it'd be heiskanen and makar uh that would be mm-hmm. kind of interesting although i don't know if they really care about that stuff but um, we'll see. That would be kind of cool. It would definitely be a good narrative to watch because they're so talented. For sure. But, yeah. Um, yeah, especially now that Makar, uh, Heiskanen should have been nominated for the uh, Calder, but uh, he wasn't. Um, let's go to the rapid fire here. Um, Ken Holland is the Oilers GM. This was just announced today on Sunday. So you're getting this fresh. Um, our fresh opinions now, here. Now, what's it officially confirmed, or is it is, is it expected that he will be? Um, I think it's official. Like Friedman, all the like McKenzie, all those guys have have mentioned it. Um, so, and I believe the Oilers even tweeted it out. Let me. Yeah, just... did, I didn't see. Can you confirm that? Because I, I didn't see any confirmed tweets from the Oilers saying, "Yeah, Holland's our guy." Yeah, I mean. Well, we were talking about it because I know Friedman mentioned it, um, and then I think like a bunch of other insiders mentioned it as well. Um, oh, it's unconfirmed, but like Darren Drager, uh, Darren Drager says the paperwork still has to get done, provided all of that is managed today. Expect the Oilers to introduce Holland as the new GM in the next few days. Holland will have autonomy, and Nicholson could take on a bigger role as well. Um, so this is from Darren Trigger, who's pretty reliable as well. Um, yeah. So, so so it's not it's not a far fetched situation. It could actually happen. Yeah, it seems like it's. I mean, there's a reason why we're talking about this right now. Um, <laughs> yeah. You should have. Yeah. If. Uh, but yeah. No. It seems like it's it's going to happen any day now. Um, but or sometime this week. Uh, but anyways, like, this is a, like, it's not, like, a terrible signing. Um, there could be a lot worse GMs they could have hired. Um, but at the same time, when I think of Ken Holland, I think of, like, how he managed to screw the Red Wings cap situation after, like, when when they started to get bad. Um, and so I feel like that's not necessarily what the Oilers need right now because you know the Oilers are bad and they're also in cap trouble as well but Ken Ken Holland doesn't need to screw up their situation they're already screwed themselves yeah exactly but at the same time it's like you know Ken Holland's a very good scout or he you know the Red Wings are known for picking out all these hidden gems in the draft so I feel Mm -hmm. like just from that perspective he'll, he'll help the Edmonton Oilers 
out just like by picking all these hidden gems in the third and fourth round and fifth round and all that stuff. So um, it's just what they struggled to do yeah. for years. Beyond the first round, their track record of drafting has been terrible. And I also saw this somewhere. Um, let me find it. Okay, since uh, trades since Illich died, uh, which was in like 2016, who was the owner of the Red Wings, but then Ken Holland was still the GM. So he traded Thomas Yurko for a third, Brendan Smith for a third and a second, Van Thomas Vanek for a third, uh, Riley Sheehan for a third, Mrazek for a conditional third and fourth, Tatar for a first, which turned out to be Joe Valenio, second and third. Uh, he traded Nick Jensen for a second and Madison Bowie, Gustav Nyquist for a second and a conditional third. So uh, he loves thirds, apparently, but... Um, he also like that. That's basically what the Oilers need is they need like to trade assets and get picks, um, and then and then all they all all they need is just to draft well and and all that stuff. And I feel like then they can they can get back to where they are. But just just given that track record of since since those uh, since Illich was the GM, you know, since Illich left. Um, you know, Holland has has been a decent GM for the Red Wings in their in their rebuild. But still, it's like, you know, you look and you see like Michael Abdelkader is being paid way too much. Um, so, so that that part of me gets a little bit um, nervous for for the Oilers because um, he could very well still give up bad contracts to players that don't deserve it. Yeah, um, and they've got a lot of bad contracts to address, like me, yeah. Lucci, Chandri, Sakara, Chris Russell. How is how is he going to make the defense better? How is he going to get rid of some of the contracts that they don't need? How can he improve this subpar goaltending led by Miko Koskinen? And more importantly, who's going to lead this team? Who's going to be the coach? And rumblings I've been hearing is Dave Tippett of yep. all people is going to be behind the bench. Which is funny because uh, I thought he was going to be the Seattle coach but I guess yeah. maybe not. Yeah and, and and the rumblings for a long time is that uh, Ken Holland would be the Seattle GM but right. I guess that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. Um, but like I'm just thinking does this provide anything new to this franchise? Like, are the Oilers adapting to the brand new NHL? I'm still concerned the old boys club is going to dominate the current Oilers scene. And I don't know if Ken Holland can adapt to this new brand of hockey. I know that he's a smart guy, but not every single general manager is the right fit for every team. Just like every coach is not the right fit for every single team. Yeah. So. I just don't know if he's the right fit for the Edmonton Oilers and what the Oilers need. There's no doubt that he knows what he's doing and he's got the track record. He might be the best name available, but down the road, I, I, I it, 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 it seems like the last time the Oilers went for a good track record, it blew up in their face. Peter Shirelli happened and it seemed to work for a year or so. But in the grand scheme of things, it didn't. Right. And you're paying this guy $5 million a year for the next five years. If reports are hold up true, if they sign this guy, it's reported to be $5 million a year for five years. Are you is, – is that investment going to be well spent? And I, I, I hope it is because 
if there's one thing the Oilers don't have, it's a good track record. And it's not just on the ice, it's off it as well. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, it's one of those things that I could see this being like a horrifying mess. And then the, another part of me is saying, it's like, well, it can't get any worse than it already has. So, but like, but then it's like, but I don't know, like, you know, the Oilers, like, it's like anything can happen with the Oilers. It feels like it can always get worse with the Oilers. Um, if, if, if it comes down between him and Mark Hunter, like, I like Mark Hunter, but it, it's, it's one thing where, you know, you're in the OHL and, and, and my buddy, one of my buddies at work is, uh, grew up an Oilers fan. He yeah. cheers for the fans, mind you, but he likes the Oilers just as much and, when I mentioned Mark Hunter, he was just like hard pass. No, right. I, I don't like that move because it's 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 one thing to you know like draft and develop young talent in the OHL, but you're not working against the salary cap. You're you just you're just looking for talent. So like it's one thing if you can draft well, but like can you make good signings? Can you develop players? Can you um, can you learn to make good trades? All all of that. Can you work around a cap? Right. That. Working around a cap, the OHL doesn't have to worry about that. Junior hockey doesn't have to worry about that. In the NHL, if you don't manage the cap, you're screwed. Right. So I think if it's a decision between Holland and Hunter, I'd probably go with Holland for that reason because I'm not sure if Mark Hunter could work around a salary cap. Yeah. Um, I don't really know too much about Mark Hunter, but um, yeah, I just. I just know that like Ken Holland seems to have screwed the Red Wings in their cap situation when they're not even then when they weren't even like competing to begin with. Um, I felt like maybe it's like there is something I was reading that maybe it had something to do with like how Mike Illich really wanted to, like to continue to get that playoff streak going, um, and then once they were able to you know so that's why they were signing veterans to long-term contracts like that so that's my main concern with ken holland but um i don't know maybe uh maybe he learns from his mistakes but he has to somehow fix like it's the same thing as what the oilers did already is they locked up a lot of veterans to long-term contracts as well so um they're he's running into the same issues Already. Just a quick note on uh, Mark Hunter there, by the way. Um, he was the longtime general manager of the London Knights. He's back managing them now. Uh, and the London Knights, in case you haven't been following junior hockey for the past decade, the London Knights, it seems like they go to the Memorial Cup or at least go to the OHL finals every second year. Oh, They've right. kind of built themselves a junior hockey dynasty over there. And Mark Hunter, Dale Hunter as well, uh, both of them have really spearheaded that movement. And they just seem to... A turnaround gym after gym every year. Guys like Matt Kachuk, guys like Max Domi, guys like, hey, Mitch Marner of the Toronto Maple Leafs, who we'll talk about later in the rapid fire. Yep. Um, Mark Hunter has been a part of that for a while. He was also the Leafs assistant GM and uh, went back to uh, the London Knights after, I believe, Dubas was named GM of the Leafs. So yep. um, he does have some NHL experience, but only a couple of years as a Leafs assistant. So. Um, I think if he comes back in the NHL scene, it's probably for a main GM position, not an assistant GM, but we'll see. But um, um, I, I think I think for future GM gigs, you'll hear his name pop up every now and then. Um, so actually, speaking of Oilers, G, uh, the Oilers GM search, uh, Kelly McCrimmon was supposed to be, uh, or the Oilers originally wanted Kelly McCrimmon, who was the Golden Knights assistant GM, 
Um, but at, then, at least, at least but then that's he, what I've been hearing on the Twitterverse. At yeah. least that's what I heard. But then uh, he got promoted to the GM of the Golden Knights. Um, mm-hmm. And but and then McPhee, it, which is kind of a surprising move because McPhee had been a pretty good GM for them um, still. But McPhee is still going to be involved with the Golden Knights and their hockey decisions because he's going to be the president of the hockey operations, which was a role that he already had um, beforehand. But I guess he just re- he gave Kelly McCrimmon the GM role. Um, I think. Part of it had to do with because they knew that the Oilers were trying to get him, and they figured that they they should just promote Kelly McCrimmon because uh, they wanted to keep him there. Um, but yeah, from what I understood though from this from this statement was that uh, McPhee is like still like in charge of the Golden Knights, um, you know, situations like. Kelly McCrimmon still is going to report to McPhee um, on all major decisions, but um, I guess McCrimmon has a larger role than what he once did. Yeah, and and Kelly McCrimmon's name has been popping up for a while. Not it was before the Oilers GM. Uh, I'm pretty sure he was considered uh, for for a couple of others, and yeah. um, I think it was just a name that was going to keep resurfacing where. McPhee was like to the point, okay, might as well give him the reins on September the 1st and just keep him a part of um, our team. And it's it's been it, it's been interesting um, to see how intertwined Vegas is as a team, how it's not just about one individual. They're all trying to keep everyone together and, yep. and trying to build a good core. And it's nice to have that up top because when you have a good team up top, you're allowed to make – uh, the, you're, you're not prone to making more train wreck decisions when you have competency at the top, when you have people that know what they're doing and when you have a good camaraderie between, you know, the people that you work with, it's going to make for a, a better chance at a winning environment at least. And for the first two seasons of their existence, the golden Knights have certainly had that. Um, it's great that, you know, everyone's getting along. Everyone's, there for each other um but as as well as uh being there for each other they're still able to make it work for the betterment of this team and mcphee's left this team in pretty good hands with kelly mccrimmon and and the good news is with mcphee still on board um kelly can always go to uh, mcphee for advice on trades and signings and such like that and i think this is going to be a happy marriage that has zero limitations and will only make the Vegas Golden Knights stronger moving forward. Um, I definitely think uh, Kelly McCrimmon has what it takes to really excel in this position. Um, he's got the right pieces working for him um, and also an owner that's really buying into. So it, the, the climate is there for Vegas to do something special. And I think this just gets them another step closer to achieving that ultimate prize. And it should also be noted uh, Kelly McCrimmon coached Mark Stone when he was with the WHL's Brandon Wheat Kings. So mm-hmm. he already had some ties um, to Vegas. And I, I think I would like to think he played a pivotal role in getting Mark Stone in Vegas as well, just because Mark Stone knew who Kelly McCrimmon was, what he was capable of, how he was, how he gelled with him from a player and a coach perspective. 
Um, I definitely think he, he brings um, a lot of clout to the role that he has, too, which is important. Yeah, the thing with this decision is that, like, I'm not sure how much... Like, I know he got promoted. I just don't know how much control he's going to have over the team, um, mm -hmm. considering it seems that McPhee, or just from the statement that he's been mentioning, it seems like McPhee, McPhee is still going to be making most of the decisions for the team. Um, so I'm not sure how much say Kelly McCrimmon's going to have, but it's not that I have anything against Kelly McCrimmon, per se. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know, at the end of the day, he's probably going to be making a bit more money than he did yep. in his, his previous role. So if anything, it's just good, that, yeah. And it, and it gives him more incentive to stay, because now instead of an assistant GM, he's a GM of a hockey team. Right, it's, but, like, instead, it's like, is he really the GM if he's not, you know, if he's not, like, your stereotypical GM in this sense? I don't know. You know what I mean? Uh, but we'll see. Um, this will be more of a topic later on when the Golden Nades start making moves. Um, Marif, uh, so we haven't, we didn't really talk about this when it happened, but the CWHL um, disbanded a couple, was it like a month ago? I think it was a month yeah, ago. Yeah, it's been about a month, yeah. Uh, they disbanded, and so now the only uh, women's league that's left is the NWHL. And they just got some big news here where Marie-Philippe Marie Poulin and Hillary Knight, who are both the most notable women hockey players in the CWHL, uh, they both um, came out and said that they're not going to be playing in the NWHL now uh, because unless they, you know, unless the NWHL can support um, a women's league and they don't feel like they have enough money to uh, support a women's league like that um, and they both don't think it's worth it as they aren't getting paid to what they should be paid um, they also want the NHL to fully support it as well um, they didn't outright say that they wanted the NHL but it's kind of implied um, and then um, so yeah this is like a huge blow to the women's hockey as these are like the biggest stars of the league like these like if you were to ask me any women hockey players I'd those would be like the first two players I would mention. Um, but um, so if they're going to leave, so this is definitely going to be a statement uh, to, to where women's hockey is at. Um, I do think there is something to like, like I know from a, from a, like a um, social standpoint, um, I love the idea of a women's league. Um, with it being like you know it's it encourages women to uh love hockey it, it gives them you know a platform to to uh you know have these inspirations that they couldn't have otherwise because there isn't like a women nhl player or there won't be it from any anytime soon so um from that point it's like you know it will give little girls dreams to to aspire to um but from a financial standpoint or a business standpoint it's not um you know just the money wise it's not going to work um and i think that's what the nhl um feels as well um because they're not you know the nhl could support it um and they should support it but I don't know if they're necessarily will do that uh, just because I feel like they're going to be losing money if they were to support it. It's not like the WNBA where, um, 
where like yeah they're the attendance rates aren't that high but um you know they're still they're still managing they're still like i think there's like they're they've been a league for 20 years or so um but i i just don't see how like how it could be a profitable league for them if they were to do that um yeah before i get into the nhlpa statement what uh any thoughts on on this boycott well, it's interesting is Marie Philippe Poulain and Hillary Knight are definitely the front runners um, in this movement, but it should also be noted that 200 participants in women's hockey across North America, what used to be the CWHL and the NWHL, are not playing at all next season. Yeah. So we go from two to 200 here. And it's been well documented that the only league in North America that's intact doesn't offer much of anything in terms of salary. In fact, some players have been paid as little as two grand per year to play yeah, this game. A lot of these players have to like take up a second job um, yeah. in order to make a living, to make it work. Like, I, so. I'm not I'm not I'm not rolling in money. Yeah. I'm making a lot more compared to <laughs> two grand, I will tell you that much. And yeah. It's one thing to play hockey as a kid and little kids aren't getting a dime. Like, you know, obviously you're paying more to play hockey than you're ever going to earn, you know, as a kid. When you're playing hockey to make a living and you're paying more than what you're getting in return, that's not a successful way to make a living. That's not a successful brand to follow. And the growth of women's hockey is being seen at international events. We, We saw it with Finland with what should have been that gold medal winning performance. I'll say it, they got robbed. But the fact that they were able to get to the gold medal game alone just shows you how how much parity there is now. Like it's it's true. It's not predictable where you see Canada US in the finals anymore. Those days are slowly dissipating in front of our eyes. And the competition's getting better. And in and at that rate, there should be growth in North America's hockey in North American hockey to follow that growth in women's hockey around the world. North American women's hockey should be growing and not stuck at the level it was at 10 to 15 years ago. So I fully support this movement. This movement absolutely needs to happen for growth in North American yeah. women's hockey to happen. Yeah. And I think it's going to make women's hockey stronger. And I think it would only get weaker if things stayed the way that they are. They need a better revenue generating model for sure. Yeah. I, I just, I think the question is, is like, I don't know if like, I feel like the only way to fix this is if the NHL supports it, and I'm not sure if that's gonna happen. That's just just my main concern, really. Well, one you know? of the things that um, Commissioner Bettman, I believe, said is that they wouldn't support a league. They wouldn't fund a league that had like a direct competitor. And at this point in North America, the only direct competitor is the NWHL, which I would think is on shaky grounds. You know, if you got 200 of the best North American women's players refusing to play hockey at all. That's lost money for you. You yeah. only have five teams in that league, so it's already not feasible. You're, but are you're, pay, the, is you're the, paying your athletes as little as two grand a year. Like, yeah. But is it, the it, NWHL a direct competitor? Against the NHL, they would probably go bankrupt in the first year. Is the NWHL a direct competitor to the NHL? It's not really. It's because like the NHL is a man's league and a, the NWHL is a women's league. It's like, that's not a direct competitor. It's like they're complements of each other or they should be complements of each other. Um, okay. But anyways, based on, based on, I'm just saying based on what Kendall coin, uh, what, uh, 
those of Kendall Coyne's caliber have shown uh, at the All Star game. Yep. Like that was a stepping stone to showcase women's oh, hockey, sure. and then and then she took the next leap by um, getting involved in NHL broadcasts, NBC broadcasts. Yep. So I think you know what other women are seeing that and going, well, you know, that could be a second gig for me. You know, while I wait for all this to subside. So I think the fact that there is also another outlet for them to express their hockey creativity off the ice. Yep. I think that gives them all the more confidence to make this decision because they, they have another outlet potentially to, to keep their hockey yep. senses sharp a little bit. That's a good point. Um, but again, like I said, the protest for, to create better vision for women's hockey is absolutely necessary. Yep. And I'm sure it might be an inconvenience for some, but I think for the greater good, it has to happen. And yep. I fully applaud this movement 100% behind it. Yeah, same. Uh, the NHLPA made a statement uh, two days after this, uh, you know, both uh, Pullen and uh, Hillary Knight uh, mentioned that they were boycotting. Um, and it was very short. Um, I'll read it here because it is that short. Uh, the NHLPA is encouraged that the players are taking an active role in the future of women's professional hockey. Their voice is important to ensure the continued growth of the game and their judgment needs to be respected. That's it. So it took them two days to write two sentences. Got it. Basically, yeah. And, you know, it's it's weird because it's like, yeah, right, you, we mentioned it before. It's very short. It's two days late. Also, it doesn't really mean that much. It's just because it's like it's on social media. They didn't even say like, uh, like, yeah, they said that they're in full support of of this boycott. But they're also like they didn't say like, oh, we're going to like, you know, give them protections. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. They, they didn't even say anything. They just said, like, hey, we're in support of this. Okay, now leave us alone. You know, it just, that's just a poor uh, way of, of of management or public interest. It feels like, it's just like, I understand that it's like the big part is, like, if the NHL is going to be a, um, you know, it wants to, it, will the NHL step in and, and that hasn't happened yet, but... Like, you could at least say more than two sentences when you make a statement. And not only yeah, that... Like, in the yeah. NFL Players Association, yeah. like, I, it was around the same time or even a short time before the NHL goes on right this. Again, yeah. you know, a short but simple media release, but has nothing to do with their sport, and even yeah. they're coming out with something. Yeah, the NFLPA had more to say about this than, than the NHLPA. That's, that's not good. Um... And, you know, and that's part of the reason why I feel like the NHL is not going to step in because they're taking this not seriously. Like, it just it just shows how much they really care about this this issue when they just put a statement like two days later and they don't even say much. They're, you know, so it's that that's that gets frustrating for, for me. Yeah, I, I definitely think there is going to be a point where the NHL does see the viable interest. And I think. I think they're going to wait until the NWHL folds. And I don't think it's going to be for very long if all of their star players refuse to play for them. So, oh, I, I was, I, I think, I think, I think the NWHL's hand is going to be forced and then the NHL buys in. I don't think it's going to happen right away though. Interesting. I was thinking that it would like happen sometime this off season. Like it's yeah, like July. Like I said, I, I probably, it, well, yeah, it could happen as soon as it's off season, but, um, I, I guess I guess it all depends on how much the NWHL has to lose. 
Right, they, right. They've true. lost a lot already. So yeah, I was about to know, say, they've already lost a lot. They don't even have that much to lose. Um, yeah, like, like when you're a direct competitor, the CWHL folds, and yeah. all of the available players you could sign don't want to play for your five-team league. Yeah, that doesn't That's look good good. on you. Right, exactly. Um, Adam Fox, uh, well, I mean, obviously we'll keep in uh, keep track of this story, but um, it is an interesting issue because it's, you know, it's definitely something that that involves all the the social issues of everything. So we're we're team uh, women here in this in this uh, in this controversy, not controversy, in this uh, boycott. Um, Adam Fox is traded to the New York Rangers for a 2019 second and a 2023rd conditional. That condition is if Adam Fox plays in 30 games or more um, in the 2019-20 season, the 2023rd becomes a 2022nd. So in a way, I feel like, I mean, I guess this was just showing that Adam Fox, um, so first off, Adam, if you guys forget, Adam Fox was a Calgary Flames prospect, um, and then he was treated in that Dougie Hamilton, uh, Elias Lindholm, Noah Hannafin trade um, that happened last season. Um, and um, and the, the report was is that Adam Fox wasn't gonna sign with the Calgary Flames, so that's why he was treated. Um, and then, um, reportedly, Adam Fox is, like, grew up a Rangers fan. He's a huge Rangers fan. That's where he was reportedly going to sign. Um, we talked about this, I think, when it happened. But Adam Fox said that he was going to he was going to take us uh, go to Harvard um, in his senior year. But um, now that he's traded to his like the team that he's he was going to sign with, that he may end up just going straight to Hartford or the, the affiliate of the Rangers there now that he, you know, he made this trade happened. Um, but, you know, I feel like the Carolina Hurricanes made off huge with this because they didn't really need to trade him to the team that he wanted to get traded to, but they got like two draft picks for Adam Fox and we don't even know if he's going to be a pro or not um, or a good pro or not. So, um, I feel like the Hurricanes made off uh, huge in this trade just because they got two draft picks out of this guy before he even played an AHL game. Yeah, it's it's definitely a risky gamble for the Rangers to make, um, but if it it could be one of those deals where it's a yeah. win-win for both sides. Um, and, and even if Adam Fox doesn't turn out well, at least the Rangers can take solace in the fact that in the same week they signed Kravtsov and Shashirkin to entry-level deals on top of signing Adam Fox to his entry-level. Yeah. So um, they at least have those two players to look forward to who could possibly turn pro as well. True. I mean, um, and the Rangers... I, I, I think you're right. It's it's probably going to start off in the minor leagues because yeah. I, don't, I think the last thing... You, you want to do is like thrust him into an NHL role just yet, yeah. especially in a rebuilding year where you're not expected to do much of anything anyway. Right. But I think that's why it's even crazier is that the Rangers, you know, like a 20, they traded a, a 2019 second, which is a pretty good spot for like, that's a, that you could still get a decent player at that, at that pick. I think they have the ninth pick um, in the second round. So they, um, you know, like the the Hurricanes got like they could still get a decent player, um, in that 
in that spot at, at 2019. So, um, yeah, I feel like the the Hurricanes kind of won this trade, but um, but I guess that all depends on how well Adam Fox is going to do, and uh, they kind of like stop this whole um, um, Fox watch, um, and it just gave him to the team that he wanted to sign with, anyways. Um, yeah, so I think it, that was it, nice in their part. eyes, it's probably going to be one of those things where they want it anyways, because you just got a second and a third that could turn into a second for a player that was probably never going to play a game for your team anyway. Right, and that, that that's the other reason why I feel like the Hurricanes won this trade um, already, <laughs> um, just because of that. But yeah, yeah. Um, we'll see how Adam Fox does. I feel like this this idea of like that the college players can decide on where they can go will be like a big topic in the next uh you know the cba agreement but um just i feel like that there's some like it seems like a loophole um even though it's not because it's in the rules but um but it seems like this is a way that like players have started to take advantage of um and we'll see. I don't know. Um, M- Mitchell Marner. Mitchell Marner? Is that, that is his name. Um, Mitch Marner uh, reportedly wants $11 million, um, according to Elliot Friedman, uh, which is around what uh, Austin Matthews got. Um, and the least we're hoping he would take a hometown discount because he grew up uh, a Leafs fan, um, and they were hoping that he would he would do that, which I I think is the funniest part about this this whole story is because like Mitchell Marner is a very good player. He you know he had he was eleventh in uh, points uh, this year. Um, he was like I think he's in he was second in assist um, in the league this year. Um, and um, the thing is so like. The, the fact that the Leafs thought that he would, like, not want to get what he's worth um, just because he grew up a Leafs fan, um, just just hysterical to me. It's like, you knew that that wasn't going to happen. Like, Marner, like, you know, it's like, especially when you, like, like his dad has been saying all along that he's been, he's, like, better than McDavid and all that stuff. It's just, like, crazy to me that, like, they're, like, Oh yeah, Marner is going to take a hometown discount because of the fact that he grew up in Toronto. You know, it's like if that were the case then like literally like every hometown player would want to go to Toronto. Um and that's only happened to one player and that happened last year with Tavares. So and that's and that's how you got into the situation to begin with. So um so yeah, this, this is like a fascinating story in our for the off season. I know the Leafs are the talk of the town in Canada, so I'm sure you're um, you're sick of it, uh, Steve. But um, but this will be like fascinating to see because I'm not like I'm not against giving Marner 11 million. Um, he's obviously a very good player. He's a you know he he passes like no other. Um, he makes assists uh, like no other. He's very fast as well. He plays defense well too, um, but to say that he's like equal to Matthews, that's where I'm not necessarily sure about. Because Matthews is even more of a rare breed, where he's like a scoring center, 
Um, and those goal scoring centers don't really come by that often either. Um, so I'm not necessarily sure if he's worth that much. Um, I think the good news for the Toronto Maple Leafs is that no one's real. I don't think any team's going to offer sheet 11 a million to Marner just because that's like they'd have to give up 4 million. They'd have to give four draft picks, first round draft picks to the Leafs. Um, if they were to to do that, um, but I feel like he is worth it on the open market. I just don't think he's going to get it just because, like it, it doesn't work that way. For our yeah, face. it's uh, it, I saw a guy with the Leafs jersey at a sixty sevens game. Leafs are everywhere. I'm, yeah, I I've just accepted that at this point. Um, <laughs> I, I'm just saying that I I, I feel like you're going to be hearing this all summer. Is, of course I will. Yeah. Of course okay. I will. It's the Leafs. It's Mitch Marner. You but know, you, I mean, like, even Toronto for me as a like Bruins it. fan, like, you know, this is a fascinating issue too because it's like, this is probably going to be the biggest story of the summer. Mm-hmm. Other and than like, where Panarin's going to work around their cap. Right. Right. Um, but I, it's baffling that people would argue that he isn't worth Matthews' figures. I mean. At the at the start of the year, shortly after Matthews gets hurt, and like Matthews had a absolutely torrid start to the season, he was absolutely straight up killing it, and he gets hurt, and a guy by the name of John Tavares spends more time with Marner, has so many good things to say about Mitch and how good he was at dictating the pace of a hockey game, and we saw Mitch in the early stage of the Bruins series making a lot of solid yep. offensive play, comes up with those massive blocks at the end of Game Three to secure victory, so he's trying to get better defensively as well. So taking away taking away those numbers, let's just take a look at how he's done stat wise. Sixty nine points in his second season, 2017-2018. Tops on the team without John Tavares. Matthews wasn't the top scorer, was Mitch Marner. Tavares comes in first year with the with his new team, his hometown team, gets forty seven goals and eighty eight points. New career high for him. Mitch Marner has 94 points in 82 games. Again, tops on the team in scoring. So I get that you're about to probably be paying like three guys in your roster upwards of $10 million per year. I can, of course, understand in a cash-strapped NHL formula why the Leafs would lowball him like that. But it's a dangerous game to play. And I think Mitch Marner is wise to do what Austin Matthews did, and that's take a five-year deal. Even if it's not the dollar sign he's looking for, get as close to as much money as they're willing to give him for five years. He's going to get his full value eventually, and some team's going to pay him. And if he keeps improving, it's going to be worth a lot more than what the Leafs are fearing to pay him right now. Yeah. And it's going to be a lot tougher for the Leafs to match because by the time Mitch Marner's deal expires then there is a chance he could be an unrestricted free agent and he can go to the highest bidder. That's true. So I think Mitch Marner really needs to think about what he's going to do and play his cards right. Because yeah. if he wants to get the best bang for the buck, it might it might be in, you know, when he's 27 or 28 and about to go in free agency. So maybe he is wise taking a lower pay cut to stay in Toronto for now because at some point he's going to get paid whether it's this contract or next contract he's going to get a ton of money 
So the Leafs better be wise of the game they're going to play with Mitch Marner because they they might be on the same page right now. He might stay and get them the wish that uh, they want for five years. But if they don't win in that five-year window, Mitch Marner is going to get his money, and it might not be with the uh, the Leafs. So even if they do um, get, even if they do win in this five-year window, I don't know if they're. Um, he's gonna. He might not be on the Leafs long term either. Yeah, exactly. You know, they they might just have one. Yeah. You know, season where they get the Stanley Cup, but they won't build a dynasty that you know everyone's expecting them to build. So yeah. I, 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 I still don't know if this formula is going to work out well because keep in mind also, you know, people forget, oh, you know, they're paying Matthews a lot of money. It's only for five years. Yeah. Well, the thing, the thing I'm looking at their cap friendly page right now, the thing with, there's nothing wrong with paying Marner 11 million because he's definitely worth that, I feel like. But the thing is, is that you also are paying Matthews 11.6 million. Um, you have uh, Tavares. Uh, 11 million for eight more or uh, seven more years and then you have um william nylander for 6.9 million um so like that all adds up together um and that's you know you can't really afford to pay all your other guys um when when it comes time to that um yeah so at some point down the line like i mentioned yeah. in our in the least post-mortem frederick anderson and morgan Raleigh will be asking for more money in two to three years Right. So that's why I was thinking, like, it, it's it's just, like, funny that, like, the Leafs were, like, saying that they thought that Marner was going to take a discount. It's like, but why? Like, Marner's your bet, like, is arguably better than Matthews and uh, Tavares, and they're getting $11 million. Like, he deserves to get what he's worth. Um, yeah, like, and, yeah. and they were, were they hoping that Matthews was going to take a, a hometown discount to stay in Toronto? No, no. Well, I mean, they couldn't because Matthews is, uh, you know, an Arizona person. But yeah, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just like, that just seems so silly to me. It's just like, oh, a hometown discount. Um, like, they should have gotten Tavares at a hometown discount. He's also from Toronto. Uh, he should have taken a hometown discount. Um, but yeah, so th- that, that part of me kind of like, la- I like laughed at that. It's just like, uh, you really think he's going to get, take a hometown discount? Um, not necessarily if he's deserving of it or anything, but it was just, it was just funny to me. Um, all right. Thank, we're... thank God, thank God his dad is not his agent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like the LeVar ball of, of hockey. Oh my God. He, he would flip. If, if he was Mitch's agent, he'd flip. Yeah, I guess so. Um, Otto, um, we don't have a ton of time left, but uh, you're you're going to talk about your Ottawa 67s. Yeah, so they're in the OHL finals right now, and the debate uh, last episode is who they were going to face. Was it going to be the Guelph Storm or the Saginaw Spirit? And uh, Guelph ended up winning game six. They forced the game seven, and they won game seven. Uh, so uh, it's them, not Saginaw, who was up three to one in that series. Um, so they're Ottawa's opponent. And uh, what's interesting about the Guelph Storm is they have a Habs prospect by the name of Nick Suzuki. And uh, he's been kind of taking the OHL by storm. He leads the OHL in playoff points right now. He's the um, uh, Canadians prospect, right? Yeah, he, he was he was originally a Vegas prospect. Right. He was one of the pieces that went to Montreal in return for Max Pacioretty. Right. So. 
Um, definitely one of the prospects they're most excited for. Ryan Paling is another one, but um, Nick Suzuki is certainly up there. Um, and um, they, they definitely have a lot of talent on that Guelph team. Um, they made a lot of ballsy decisions at the trade deadline. They, I think out of all the OHL teams, they really went all in the hardest, even more so than Ottawa, and uh, kind of transformed their team. So it's, it, it's interesting because um, I, I think out of all of the OHL teams in the West that I didn't expect to be in the OHL finals, probably Guelph was out there because even though they had all the talent in the world, I, I just wasn't concerned. I was a bit concerned that their defense and their goaltending wasn't going to be up to snuff. And um it looked like in in the second round they were going to be an easy out. London had them on the ropes, three nothing. They reverse sweep London, force game seven, one game seven, and then they go to Saginaw, fall behind three to one. I'm thinking, okay, they're done this time, and then they, like I said, end up forcing game seven and win game seven on the road. Um, so they definitely have as much resolve as the sixty sevens do. It's going to make it a very interesting series. And in game one. It, it was pretty close. And then the 67 slowly started to run away with it. They get um, power play, a five minute power play in the third period. In a 4-2 game, they score three times to make it 7-2 and really blow it wide open. And that is a trademark that I have seen from the Ottawa 67s in the past, where they're, they're in a pretty tight game, especially in the opening round, or in the, in the opening game of a playoff round. Uh, they're in a very tight game and for uh, for whatever reason there's just a period of hockey where they just turn on the afterburners and all hell breaks loose and they just slowly take over movies um so it, it it's it's just it's it's amazing to see, but also amazing that it continues to happen, that they're able to get results like this and just find new ways to win. It, it, it really makes that kind of playoff hockey so exciting. So when they were playing game two on Saturday, I thought, I have to see this. And per ticket in the seats that we were at, it was just under $40 per ticket. So like compared to the kind of a pricing you would get for an NHL playoff game, like this is a bargain price. Um, and what I was also noticing that in the day be drawn, those seats wouldn't be in use. They used every single seat in the entire, and that hasn't happened in a very long time. So it was. It was it was during the first round where I'm thinking if we can get every single seat filled, that's when you know this team is about to do something special. And we finally got to that point. Uh, it didn't start off very well in game two. The Barber Bulls were actually down two to nothing, and then Di Pietro gets injured, and Cedric Andre has to come in. hasn't played a single second of hockey in these playoffs, and the 67s look to be on the ropes. They get a favorable penalty call going their way so they end up going on the power play then about a minute later Guelph takes another penalty so it's a two-minute advantage for Ottawa and I'm thinking if they can get a goal in the dying seconds of this period um, they go into the dressing room with momentum they got something going here and sure enough they score on the power play 
that power play carries over in the second period, two, uh, less than two minutes into the second, they tie the game up. Then Bellaber scores again to make it three to two Ottawa, and then they make it four to two by the time by the time the period was out, and Guelph had their chances in the third, but Andre made a pair of far post beauty pad saves, and just for a guy to come in on short notice not playing a single second of hockey in these playoffs and to turn into a performance like that that's a vintage no quit win when your team is down two nothing to a very good guelph team for them to come out of that um for for them to come out of that games one and two stretch with a two nothing series lead is huge because if they go into guelph one one and guelph takes both games they go home on the brink of elimination now the worst case scenario that can happen to ottawa is they're tied at two and it's a best of three so ottawa's got a lot of business to take care of in guelph we all know that in the previous series that guelph has been a part of they don't go away easily and the third and the fourth wins are probably going to be they're going to have to be the hardest working efforts that ottawa's put forward this year so the, the work isn't finished but I definitely think the 67s are in good position heading into Guelph on Monday. All right. Well, I guess you have something to look forward to. Um, mm-hmm, hopefully. And uh, it should uh, be noted, by the way, um, Halifax, the Memorial Cup hosts, are in the QMJHL finals. So no matter who wins the QMJHL finals, whether it's Ruin Aranda or Halifax, both teams are already in the Memorial Cup. So oh, half of the field in the Memorial Cup is set. Ruin Aranda and Halifax are in. The winners of the WHL and the OHL will join them in about a week's time. Interesting. Um, okay. Um, I just found out that Michelle Terrian is going to be an assistant coach for um, Elaine Vigneault um, in Philadelphia. So there's oh, wow. news. <laughs> um, and then. And then I also saw, let me pull out this quote again, um, that Pavelski spoke today. He said that he didn't think uh, the Golden Knights did uh, injured him was malicious on that play. I have no issues with that play. Was it a five-minute major? No. Was I happy they called it that way? Heck yeah. So, um, so even Pavelski didn't think it should have been a five-minute major. Um, yeah, uh, that's about it. Uh, sorry for it being very long. We're just past the two hour mark, but we had a lot to get to. So, um, I figured it was worth it. Um, yeah, that's about it. Go Bruins. Um, you can catch us at, uh, you know, on our SoundCloud. Uh, we're also on Spotify, iTunes as well. Uh, we should be on most podcast platforms by now. Um, our Facebook is Lace Up Podcast. I mean, our, our Twitter's Facebook are Lace Up Podcast. Our tw- our Facebook is Lace Them Up, um, and you can do all that stuff. I'm Brett Duboff. I'm Steve Ellsworth. We'll have a lot to talk about next week with the conference finals and the NHL awards, and we might have a special guest to help us break it all down. That will be in episode 171 of the Lace Em Up Podcast. Go Bruins.